Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Rhetoric. Today, you are going to have all three of us back again with Arun and Bradley and myself talking about trends for 2020. Because after all, it is December. What else do we have to talk about other than trends and make all kinds of wrong predictions? Just don't come back and hold us accountable afterwards. So hello, gents. Welcome back. Hi to you. And let's talk about some of the top trends. I think uh, for me, I think uh, the, the biggest thing that's emerging over the last few months is um, China's takeover of India's fintech landscape. Uh, Can we just use that as the top line? China's taking over the world. China's taking over India, which is the world. So yeah, uh, uh, so, so uh, China's takeover of uh, India is, is perhaps uh, the biggest one. I think another hot emerging trend, maybe may not as big as that for me, is uh, the climate regulations and policies that are starting to kick in. Uh, with uh, Christine Lagarde's uh, takeover of uh, or uh, appointment as the president of the ECB, and she's really pushing hard for some of the policies to come through. And uh, we'll talk about that in detail. Um, and uh, of course, there are quite a lot of uh, noise around challenger banks um, with just uh, growth, uh, plan to grow without much of uh, plan to profitability. That, that theme keeps coming up and I'm sure that is not going to die uh, anytime soon. Um, and then of course, sustainable finance. I think that's probably the other thing uh, with quite a few initiatives happening across the world on that front. Um, that's the biggest ones for me, uh, Brad, sorry, go for it. No, I was just going to dive into one of those. And I just, you know, let's, let's actually get into the meat and the bones and like, you know, let's dive in and have some foie gras here. Um, so oh, of seriously, like, that's actually very controversial, my friend. I think, well, it's you know, we're talking about China places. taking over the world. I'm sure they're buying all the foie gras and all the wine and all the wineries and all they that. They are buying, buying wineries. Actually, I think Bowers, Chris, he got a um, bottle of wine from the, Jack Ma's Winery in France. I believe he tweeted it out. We should ask him. Jack Ma probably owns half of France's vineyards, I would imagine, by now. Yeah. I mean, so I let's know. talk about MePay, right? That's what we want to talk about. Latest is MePay um, going into India. Now, never mind all of those other big techs. In the last episode, though, Arun, you had talked about um, WhatsApp, which is PayCart. Um, you had talked about um, other payments. So, Brad... What do you think is going to happen? Your um, crystal ball forecast. My crystal ball forecast for 2020 is going to be continued consolidation in the industry. I think it's going to continue to see a lot of challengers and neobanks attempt to go into markets like the U.S., but I think it's a lot harder than they think uh, and a much more expensive market to dive into. Um, banks will continue to seek efficiencies through new technologies like AI and machine learning and all of these things that are going to be very much sort of underneath um, underneath technology that clients and customers will not necessarily see, but it will do things like reduce headcount and make banks a little bit more efficient as they see their continued profits sort of driving away from their core businesses and you know, God bless them. Banks always find a way to make money. And uh, whether it's one side of the balance sheet or another, the customers somehow are not getting what they should still be getting, which to me is an ongoing trend for the last decade of things that I would wish for, but I'm still not seeing the industry actually produce. Um, so I could go on and we could talk about China and India and um, sort of the wave and rise and fall of different empires. And as we Think about the last couple hundred years as uh, I'm watching The Crown currently. Um, the UK, if I remember, a couple hundred years ago, used to be the biggest, baddest player in town. 
And then the U.S. came along as this big upstart and basically took the world over again and pushed down the Soviet Union and any other challenger that came along as a single sole power. And then we came and now we're seeing China. And you talk about China and India and you talk about Chinese payment systems and other things going into India and sort of taking over, quote unquote, the financial system. You could talk about China being ahead of India in a lot of ways in terms of their economy and the way it's structured and the way that they produce things and the way that their finances are going to sort of take over the next hundred years and their economy is going to be the biggest. But watch out for India because everybody gets their turn. Every country on the planet will eventually get their turn. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Fiji or one of these nations down the road to kind of take over and have, you know, Fiji Arcana, which is going to be a spread of two or 300 countries underneath the Fijian flag. So, you know, it's just what comes in, what goes out. It's just a cycle of life. Um, Theo, you want to take that on? Theo, stop laughing. Speech. <laughs> um, All right. So this, this, is, this is what you call retribution, right? So you did it to us and uh, he's now did it to you. Uh, yeah, he's done it to you. Um, uh, anyway, so um, one thing I wanted to add there, Brad, is uh, about the China-India, rise of India and China. Uh, before the uh, age of imperialism, about 1600s and all that, if you looked at the GDP, those two nations were at the top of the pile. Um, so it is just about, it's really not emerging markets, it's more like re-emerging markets if you think about it. Um, and, and it's interesting primarily because, uh, I mean, going back to the payments conversation, uh, every week we see some major player getting into the market um, and and it, it was Walmart in 2018, and, and the last 12 months has been a complete Walmart story. And uh, more recently, it's been it's come back to SoftBank and uh, Alibaba, and now we have uh, uh, the other story from China, the uh, uh, MePay that uh, we have from uh, uh, from China again, getting into India. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a heated battle, and unfortunately we keep talking about payments payments all the time, but that's pretty fundamental fundamental to uh, what we do in fintech. So we cannot run away from payments, even though we know that it's it's uh, largely saturated in many parts of the world. Um, and coming back to the challenger banks conversation, maybe we should spend a few minutes on that if that's okay. So um, I really think. Uh, Next year will still be growth. I don't think challenger banks will go for profitability anytime soon. I still think there is at least two to three years worth of growth that they will be uh, uh, going for. And I'm sure funding will happen. Um, uh, the, the big names will manage to pull funds despite the fact that they are growing at a, a pace where they haven't even thought about uh, profitability. Or maybe they have and uh, they have. It's, it's, it's by design. But I still think next year is going to be the same thing. Yeah, in terms of Challenger Bank, though, it's interesting because every day you keep seeing new stats that came out and say, oh, you know, Revolut had so many, you know, uh, accounts in opening or, you know, all the other new banks. That's the stat that they tout for. But what what well, one thing that we don't do enough or we don't do justice is looking at how our financial lives is right now it is not that uncommon for people to have multiple bank accounts multiple relationships with different financial institutions so sure yes i have an account with acorns and i have an account with some of the fintech challenger banks but my main bank is still with city 
And so in terms of where my money goes, the deposits and all of those is still with my main bank. So my question to both of you and probably to the larger FinTech um, ecosystem is, yes, we might be seeing a lot of new account openings with the new challenger banks, but how sustainable is that? And are they really making a substantial impact in terms of getting deposits from the main street banks? But that's, you know, that's the metric. The metric is where is your paycheck going? You know, where are your primary deposits going? And, and that's always been sort of the conundrum of smaller institutions. Um, I remember, you know, more than a decade ago fighting for, you know, direct deposit when I was with credit unions and community banks. And it's, it's a very different model to say that I'm going to build a sustainable, profitable startup based on partial deposits and relying on debit transactions and interchange. And so that's why, you know, I think it's going to continue to be challenged with N26 and Revolut and New Bank in Brazil and all these others, where if you have 10 million customers and they give you 20% of your deposits or they give you a slice of your payment activity, they're doing it for a particular reason. They're not, even, even if, you know, some of these challenger banks are saying that 15, 20, 25, 30% of their customers are using them as their day-to-day bank, they're using them as their day-to-day depository, you know, place where they're just moving money back and forth. Yes, you could get incremental dollars out of that. Yes, you can make some of those customers profitable, but unless you have a fuller relationship, unless you, you know, introduce a credit product of some sort or another type of fee-based product, you're not going to drive profitability out of 10 million customers. What I said today, there was a posting of like all the customers that these neobanks have, and it ranged from 10 million down to about a million. If a community bank or a credit union in the US had a million customers or a million members, they would be profitable immediately because they have a full relationship with these customers. So the idea that you know, you're gonna throw 100 million, 200 million, $500 million and more, and some of these valuations are ridiculous, into a company that has no sustainable business model, until they actually figure that out, I wouldn't be putting money in. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on, on the model, but I'm not bullish on their near-term profitability at all. So Brad, um, one of the things we've been uh, talking uh, about on LinkedIn, at least the uh, last couple of weeks or a couple of, couple of weeks ago with uh, Richard and Richard Turin and uh, Paulo Cerrone is what where are where is banking heading towards right is it is it heading towards platformization or are they becoming utility providers with uh, tech fins or the, the tech chains becoming the distribution channels or uh, the or or the bigger uh, uh, bigger or the newer trend where we have uh, lifestyle businesses coming in the grabs and the go checks of the world becoming distribution channels of uh, of banking now uh, that is that is potentially the trend going forward with distribution channels of banking completely taken out of the bank's hands. But I still think, uh, for example, Revolut, it could be a very interesting financial services marketplace um, with with a, with a couple of um, uh, or, or ten million customers, simple uh, uh, current account or current current uh, yeah current account, and you can have a, a, a robot advisory app sitting on their marketplace and they can just work out a commission model from that. Of course, yeah, they've not figured it all out yet, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but that's, but that's a fee based uh, product, you know, introduced early on. Yeah. It's not, it's not to say yeah. that, you know, 
Chime and Acorns and all these other services aren't going to add that fee-based service or that sort of tier that is going to automatically make 30% of the customers profitable and therefore overall is going to make the company profitable. Absolutely. And, and I know, you know, from talking to these teams over the years, as they develop product, it's not easy to just say, hey, you know, tomorrow I'm going to introduce a fee-based model for, you know, sort of advisory services around wealth or I'm going to introduce a credit product. But I talked to a startup the other day. These guys had launched three or four um, direct banks in different countries around the world. It's called Unify Money. They're launching with both sort of a current account and a credit product in, embedded in, in both at the start. And it's, I, I've never understood why you wouldn't do both and try to capture a relationship on both sides of that balance sheet and then continue to build off of that from the beginning. It makes no sense with 10 million customers not to have a credit product immediately or have a, a fee-based wealth product immediately. So that's my only question is, you know, if banks can do it and have 10,000 customers and be profitable, literally, you look at some of these balance sheets of some of these very, very small institutions, 10,000 customers and you're immediately profitable. Why can't you do it with a million? Why can't you do it 10 million? So, so Professor Lima, is it your professional opinion that in 2020, we're going to see more consolidation of challenger banks and the ones that don't make it, it's going to go away? I think what you're likely going to see is that you're going to see a few launch in the U.S. and not succeed, and then they'll retreat back to Europe. I like that. Um, let's move on in relation to that. Look at big techs, right? And, and what they've been doing this year. They have certainly been making noise. You see Apple um, going with Marcus with Apple Card. I will be very curious to see what's going to happen in 2020. Um, if they are going to add new features or if they will, my wish list will be to hopefully see them to add more tools to help consumers make better decisions. And, you know, similar to like what we see with the, um, how many steps you've done, nudging you to do more, nudging you to do better. That would be my wish list. Whether or not they will do it in 2020, I'm not sure. But 2020, thinking about that beyond the, an announcement of the announcement that, uh, Google is going to do something, which we don't know what exactly they're doing. Um, where do you see 2020 playing out with them? Um, in regard to Google or just anybody in the big tech side? I mean, you know, Google has a history of jumping into financial services and then jumping out. But they're really good at, you know, understanding very quickly that something's not going to make money. Uh, so I'll give them that. It's not like um, they toil for years and years and years and then continue to you know, put money into something that doesn't make anything. So it'll be interesting to see what they launch with checking or whatever else they're trying to do. Um, I thought it was interesting years ago when they went into bill pay and they were exploring this idea of sort of having that, that transactional history of your day-to-day -day transactions and that never really went anywhere, which again, comes down to the conversation that we've had many times this year, which is about trust and technology companies. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, the, the biggest sort of hedges I would have on any sort of model coming into the space outside of, say, China and India, which are totally different animals, I think, than, than Western Europe and, and the U.S., would be, is trust and faith in sort of the traditional system going to erode so much that we're going to all of a sudden see Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and other um, sort of large tech players, like Arun was alluding to, become sort of the, you know, the, the plumbing of the financial system itself. So that to me will be, be interesting to see how the model continues to change toward sort of a platform model. 
I agree. So, Arun, let's talk about the other side of the world, i.e., you know, the the part that actually matters, right? Um, in terms of in terms of the big tech and entry into India, and in relation to the policy too, actually, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't they coming up with a sort of data privacy and regulation in terms of whether or not the big techs can store the data, or should they store the data and limit them to local? Uh, yes, uh, India has been big on that. Uh, WhatsApp Pay actually launched uh, with the, within a limited scope of users, with a limited uh, limited scope of uh, pilot users. I think it was last year, and uh, it didn't take off primarily because they had they were storing users' data, users' payments data, uh, in data centers outside of India, um, and the Reserve Bank of India didn't like that, so they basically said, uh, "Fix that and come back to us." Make sure your data centers are in India, and then we'll 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 consider your uh, your solution. I think they have fixed it, uh, and I'm I'm hearing rumors that they're going to be out there again, which means there is going to be one more potential player against Paytm and 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 phone pays. I know we've we've spoken about this uh, this to death, but um, you're going to see uh, another trend emerge potentially. Uh, so uh, data protection is starting to look like uh, a massive, uh, massive uh, cause of concern for some of these uh, big tech firms in India as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we're going to see that. Um, but I think they've, they've, we've seen that for the last 12 months as well. So it's perhaps not a 2020 trend. I mean, in 2020, we're probably going to see more of these guys fix those issues and move into the green with, uh, with these countries. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. What else do you see happening in India around that? Because it almost seems like every few years they come up with a new regulation, new policy that just drastically change the landscape. Uh, and for, for good or bad, but, you know, if you look back at, you know, how changes have come about, um, it, it's been quite astounding. I think that would be the word I'll use. Agreed. I think uh, if I were to look forward to what, what could potentially happen in, um, in India in 2020, I would definitely like to see uh, the payments bank uh, model, which was introduced about a couple of years ago, uh, being uh, expanded at scale. Uh, Paytm have shown that it can be profitable, but they haven't really been very successful at it as they have done with payments. Uh, so I would like to see the payments bank concept reach the last mile, the rural uh, rural population, if not the rural population, I think tier two and tier three cities in India, which is still a huge market to tap into. Uh, and as, as we discussed about challenger banks uh, in the West, I think there is a huge opportunity to provide credits, uh, underwriting uh, capabilities, I see a lot of startups uh, that are targeting not just India, uh, the emerging markets, uh, Latin America, uh, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and, and of course, India, uh, where they actually use very clever algorithms 
uh, tapping into psychometrics, uh, uh, tapping into alternative data about them, um, mobile the data that your mobile has, uh, all this come bringing all these together to make credit decisions, not just about their, their ability to repay, but also their intention to repay. So I think uh, some of those models are going to kind of start to scale uh, in, in, uh, in uh, the emerging markets over the next couple of years. We've not seen that scaling really a lot. We see sporadic implementations of these models, but I think that's going to be, uh, credit is going to be hopefully taking off in the next couple of years, I think. So speaking of that, I have I have two thoughts and, and two responses to it. Um, AI and machine learning and the application of it, certainly, you know, it, it has spurred quite a bit of discussion um, in, in the last few months, whether or not it's bias, whether or not it's fairness and transparency and all of that. Looking into 2020, um, it is a given, right, that it is going to stay. We're going to see more use cases out of it. Um, if we were to go separate trends between wish lists, I almost feel like we should do a third one on wish list. Um, but from a trends perspective, you know, I, I, I would think we will continue to see more applications, but more so still continued focus on squeezing out more from the existing systems and, and processes and getting us to be more efficient. Um, do we see us being able to get out of that and actually do something more for, for consumers aside from lending? Cause you know, we all need to keep buying things that we don't need. Well, I mean, we had to see technology companies and we had to see banks actually look at optimization of things beyond, you know, scheduling a calendar item. Right. You know, today we're, we're looking at AI applications that are about AML and KYC and about, um, more efficiencies around risk and credit and basically taking the human element out of decision-making. When are we going to truly see something from any of these companies that are beyond getting you from point A to point B and actually getting into something like driving your finances and daily, you know, looking at what you're doing and optimizing that and not just optimizing the spend. I, you know, I, I harp on this and the other day I was like really yelling on Twitter, someone that I shouldn't be yelling at. Um, Ron Shevlin, if you're out there, I apologize. Did you do um, a high caps? You know, I, 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 I did. I, I told Ron that I was really sorry about going off on financial inclusion and what banks should be doing. But there was a study that came out, you know, that, that surveyed consumers and they said that people that work in banking should do more around financial inclusion and income inequality. And I went on and on and I said, look, they're exactly right. Because I think that if we can't get those people in our lives, financial service companies, of which we have seven on average, if we have seven relationships around our money and none of them are actually looking out for our best interest outside of perhaps our long-term investment advisors, and even those are really suspect, aren't they? Then we have to really, really, truly think about what a technology company could come in and do if they could optimize our income opportunities. So that's why, you know, we work with companies like Stubo and others that are optimizing gig situations and other opportunities to increase income. But the income inequality question really comes down to opportunity. And op opportunity can be optimized. And it's, in my way, easier to match up a list of job or income opportunities where someone could increase that important side of the balance sheet with a person that was looking for this match in a particular area or something they could do at home or whatever it might be, right? Or maybe it's, it's up, upping their skill set by doing additional training. And to think, oh, there's a, there's a bank out there that can help you get that job training. 
or there's a model out there that will pay for your college or pay for your education and then take a portion of that. That's the Lambda School and others that will take a portion of that income until you pay it off. It's ridiculous to think that financial services can't be part of that part of the balance sheet that actually improves people's lives, their standing in society. So yeah, if I had a wish list and if I had to say, this is something that AI could actually get into, it would be that, making society more equal. I do agree. And I think that's one of the things that we always stress about when we, when we look at, you know, working with startup founders, when we look at, you know, promoting different solutions and ideas, I think between the three of us in our different ways, we always look at how do we leverage the tools and the knowledge and know-how and everything that we have. I mean, for God's sake, we can put people in the moon. I'm sure we can do better in our society to help people do better. Um, so I, I do absolutely agree with that. Speaking of that and purpose, Arun, let's go back to something you said in the very beginning um, with regards to sustainable finance and climate risk. So kudos to, yay, that's what happens when you put a woman in the ECB and voila, we actually <laughs> focus on something that matters. You know well, I, mean, I was going to say I, that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you had to say that. Um, anyway, so I, I have to say this. Uh, I actually met up with uh, a very seasoned uh, a social entrepreneur last week. Uh, she leads an organization. She's been leading it for about 20 years in India and uh, helping out rural women, about half a million of them uh, through the last 20 years. I had the opportunity and she was giving me a lot of insights about uh, social uh, challenges and how, how things are done uh, in that space. And one of the things she meant, uh, she kind of uh, alluded to was we have to empower women across the world to actually make the system more socially conscious, more sustainable, more environment conscious. So I have to agree with you on that because um, uh, it's, it's, it's coming from Chetna and I'm going to take this gospel. Uh, but, uh, in, so in, let in, it be uh, known that juries and listeners that Arun actually agreed with me on one thing. <laughs> on the, I mean, that is my accomplishment for the year. I don't well, need to do I, I agreed with Chetna, right? So you, you, can, you can take it uh, this way as well. But uh, I, I'm, I'm so, much in, um, uh, so much inspired by Christine Lagarde's leadership around uh, climate policies and, and how she's trying to integrate uh, climate into ECB's monetary uh, policy making, and one of the thing that she, one of the things that she's trying to push for is to um, unwind some of the potentially unwind some of the assets that they have in not so sustainable industries, and trying to move towards more uh, more uh, green investments like green bonds and and so on. So, what does it mean to us? So I, I really think uh, when, when, you, when you talk about the fintech ecosystem or any, any startup ecosystem, it's actually a, 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 it's actually a pyramid of uh, money coming in from the central bank. So when, when ECB allocates a certain amount of money to sustainable investments, that then goes down to uh, uh, goes down a level to say uh, uh, private equity funds to uh, to to uh, pension funds and so on and so forth at the top level fund of funds as well and then that then flows down to the venture capital funds like us uh, which basically gets deployed into startups so and and as long as sustainability metrics are tracked through this little uh, flow of funds we should be we should be in a good place in like in a few years time where there's quite a lot of investments flowing into climate friendly uh, startups uh, green startups uh, uh, good sources of uh, energy start i mean uh, energy 
for started focusing on um, solar wind power and so on and so forth so i think that's a really big trend and that is perhaps what i'm looking forward to uh, apart from that uh, i was also um, uh, part of the sustainability uh, event sustainable finance event run by finextra uh, this week and we had some really insightful conversations there and it was a slightly different event to the usual events you go to it was like a workshop that one was fully workshop and we took up a problem and uh, thought through how how we could actually address it so one of the problems we we tried to solve solve for was trade finance how can we make trade finance much more sustainable uh, and it was all about it it one thing that comes out of that is it's all a data game if you capture the right kind of data using the right kind of resources uh, validate the data and put it into a some kind of a system in a secure way you're going to see patterns you're going to see kpis you're going to be able to track them monitor them uh, manage them on an ongoing basis and improve it from a sustainability perspective i think that was the key theme of it and i think we need to see more startups being uh, solving that problem for us across the ecosystem not just trade finance but different uh, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, value chains that you see i think that's that's perhaps what i think would be the next few years actually I agree. I I just came back from an event in uh, Switzerland, and it seems like sustainability is a big theme um, there as well. You know, when they look at not just the day to day lives, right, but also what do they do and how it relates. Um, a speaker actually said, you know, sustainability needs to be something on top of our mind. Needs to be something that we do regardless of what industry you are and regardless of who you are. When you know the the trend toward. people caring about where their dollars are going i think is interesting and you know theo you connected me with the founder of cnote uh, i talked to them yesterday and and they use their funds to help um, community institutions invest in their communities through cdfis or community de- uh, development funds and you know i think it's it's institutions that also need to do this type of investments at the community level so it's great to see sdg and esg sort of investments getting into longer term wealth um and down to the consumer level um but when institutions get involved at all levels to build up not just <clears throat> things that are important for the planet but things that are important for our communities then i think we're improving um and something that you said earlier made me think of something you know to to put someone in charge of the ecb who's a woman and look at how things change um let's see what the next year brings with the election be nice to see a woman in the white house as well I still remember that picture that somebody posted a couple of weeks ago in an ECB meeting and there she was the only person in there with like another 12 13 guys in suit they all look exactly the same and we wonder how come our policy has been the way it is right and it's it it's it's um something i would like to see continue as a trend for 2020 but not just a trend for a particular year but something that is actually can be ingrained in our society when we think about diversity when we think about is not just a box to check off is not just to say hey you know look we actually have a woman in there kind of like an animal in the zoo um but more than that is beyond that right why do we stress diversity is because we want to bring different people from different backgrounds that can spur conversations that can spur innovations that can just challenge us to think differently i mean look at the three of us We all came from different backgrounds. We all came from 
different countries, um, by and large, different cultures. And I would say, you know, one of the most enjoyable things I always do with this podcast, and thanks to Arun for bringing us together, is to talk to the two of you and, well, okay, um, give you crap too, which is always fun. But it's just the, the way we view things are very different. And, um, and I think it's always interesting, which brings me to um, recently I had, a, I had a chat with somebody from France and um, we were talking about, uh, you know, how China operates um, about communists and how some European countries operates like quote unquote socialists and, uh, and how democracy should be, which I always thought is interesting when it comes to, people doing things, things that they care about, and immediately we put a label next to it. Why does it matter if it's a socialist or a communist or anything like that, as long as it's something that works for the people, works for the population that they need and drive growth and drive equality and drive the values that matters to them, right? Isn't it at the end of the day what's important? But that's, and Brett's going to say no. No, no, no. I, I just, I, I think of... Um... The, the people that would say, oh, no, that's not what we want. We don't want equality and all these things. But there's people that think like that. There are people that actually just care. I mean, at least from the outside, just care about their own situation and their own, you know, sort of set of whatever goals and whatever else. And they don't look besides themselves. They don't look outside of themselves. And if anything, you know, as, as we do have very different backgrounds, I would say the three of us in our own way, <clears throat> and throughout our career have demonstrated that we are looking outside of ourselves. And maybe it's just getting older. Maybe it's, you know, having the experience that we have. But systematically, again, I believe that labeling um, something as socialist or communist or capitalist or anything um, is simply going to put you in your tribe in one corner. And it's going to stop you from listening beyond um, you know, your own affirmations of your viewpoints. And so you're right. Just come up with good ideas and try to get them out without labeling them. I think we might actually have more people accepting them. So here, my trend for 2020, the last one I predict is going to happen is nothing's going to change. <laughs> That's the cynical side of Theo. Now, that is different from my wish list. My wish list is we will actually care. We will put aside our differences between generations, between countries, between boundaries, and actually work together. However, looking at things that has been happening, I think we're all very comfortable putting people in different corners and we play within our own corners and I do not see that changing in 2020. I hope to be proven wrong. I would love to be proven wrong. A year from now, we'll come back and say, oh my God, the world is such a lovely place. But looking at how, for example, the AI development, the arms race, so to speak, because we, we need um, buzzy word titles for clickbaits, how China has been developing their own AI technology because the doors closed behind them and US wanted to you know, keep developing whatever it is that we're developing in here. And EU is coming up with their own fund because they said, oh my goodness, God forbid, we cannot lag behind. And all of those other developments and I'm seeing more and more nationalism and protectionism between different countries, not just the U.S., not just Germany, not just China, but everywhere. If you look around a lot of the policy changes, a lot of the social unrest and all of that, which filters down to how private corporates can work or not work and how ideas can be exchanged or not exchanged. 
um, I don't see 2020 being a year that will get us better. But again, I would love to be wrong. So before we close here, I am going to bring us back into an upbeat mood. Um, what is, if there's one thing you can do for 2020, if there is one wish you can have for 2020, what would that be? Arun, go. Getting my body fat below 13%. Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. I'm working uh, hard towards that. So that's hopefully going to be the, the year when I finally get there. Well done. Brad? I, I was going to say uh, convince another couple companies to uh, re review their business model, to consider their profit margin um, something that can be addressed. Because, uh, you know, doing it and not having things dramatically change is not unexpected. But when you talk to a startup or two and you actually have changed their model as they go through their first couple of years of development, that feels good. That feels that you're making a difference. And so I want to continue that. I like that. That's very inspiring. See, for me, I'm like, I just want to be able to sleep a few more hours. That's an easy one. <laughs> you should. It's not easy for you. You should sleep. Exactly. See, that is my ginormous 2020 goal. I would love to be able to run a half again. I had not done that this entire year. I've been really bad. But before I can get there, I need sleep. So with that, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. Hope we did not bore you. And please, if you have any other 2020 goals, if you agree, disagree, drop us a note. You know where to find us. And thank you for listening. <laughs>